All right, let's go. Uh, Revelation chapter 2. Revelation chapter 2. If you don't have a Bible, we will have the text up on the screens behind me in just a little bit. We also have some physical Bibles scattered around the room, little racks beneath the seat. If you don't own a Bible of your very own, we would invite you to take that physical one home. Uh, the reason for that's really, really simple. We believe that God uses his word for all kinds of important things, but the top shelf reason that God gave us the scriptures is to teach us about himself, to sh- reveal himself to his people. It's how you come to know God in an, in an intimate way, in a salvific way. And so uh, if you don't have a copy of God's word, that puts you at a disadvantage, and we can fix that. Just take that physical one home. I'll call it the, one of the best parts of my week. Um, the Cowboys are playing a, a mediocre team today, so it's kind of tied for a second. All right, so, all right. No, welcome to week number four of our effort to walk through uh, the letters of the seven churches in Revelation together. Uh, the entire book of Revelation uh, is a letter to these seven churches. And so uh, the, the, the individual letters that Jesus has John write are kind of the platform that the rest of the book of Revelation sits upon. Uh, but we're only taking uh, our effort to look at these seven letters to these churches individually. Um, Jesus is going to instruct John the Apostle to write down everything he sees and everything everything that is and is about to be, everything, things that already are and things that are about to come to pass is the poetic way that he says it, all right? Uh, but before he gets to that message uh, for all these churches, John has right, Jesus has John, that's hard, that's a tongue twister for me, all right? Jesus has John write letters to each of these seven churches um, individually. And so in week one, we established that, that Jesus is the, the one who stands in authority over all these churches. He's in charge of these churches. Uh, he's not some outside con- commentator with some ideas about how things may be, you know, a little bit better. Uh, He's not a voice in the equation of a bunch of autonomous bodies making up their own decisions. No, he is Lord and master of these churches. They're his churches. And if these churches don't look and live as the master wants them to look and live, well, then it's his prerogative whether or not they continue to be his churches, continue to get to remain being one of his churches. His bodies. And so since week one, we spent the last couple of weeks looking at the first two churches of the seven, Ephesus and Smyrna. And Ephesus had a lot of really incredible things that you could, you know, things going on, things that you could celebrate and probably ought to applaud and uh, ought to be impressed with. They held sound doctrine. They had a positive influence on their community. Those are both wins, obviously. Uh, But Jesus tells the church at Ephesus that none of those things matter if they have lost their first love. So what we learned with the church at Ephesus is that it's possible to get a lot of really, really important things right, but still miss what is of utmost importance. It's possible to do a number of really great things, but still miss the mark on what is actually valuable, of, of most valuable. And then last week, we looked at the church at Smyrna. Tiny church, tiny town. The call for them was to remain faithful even as the hardships around them like ramped up and got worse. Like who wants that, right? Um, As it got harder and harder and harder in that city to be faithful, Jesus calls them to that faithfulness. We often have a very faulty understanding of success, even when, even where, um, where God is is when times are hard, right? And like, but instead of making all the problems go away, which is kind of what we normally expect God to do, Jesus promises to be with them in the midst of that hardship and be waiting for them on the other side of that persecution, even if that persecution results in death. And how, how can Jesus make such a promise? Oh yeah, he's the one who already defeated death. That's his point. Like, like the worst they can do is kill you. I already got that covered. So you ready to look at our third letter this morning? You got no other choice. We're doing it. All right. 
Verse 12. Who's it written to? And to the church, and to the angel of the church, where? Pergamum. That's a fun name. And to the angel of the church at Pergamum, write the words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword. All right, so it's the church in Pergamum. Cool. So, so what do we know about Pergamum? We actually know quite a bit. We actually know a ton about Pergamum. Pergamum was a capital of its own little Greek kingdom before it became a part of Rome. Uh, but unlike most of the other Roman provinces that you see, uh, as you start walking, working through provinces of Rome during the, the early first century, most of those were all captured or conquered in some kind of fashion. Uh, that, that didn't happen to Pergamum. Pergamum decided to cede itself over. It just gave itself away. Hey, can we be a part of the Roman Empire? And they're like, sure, come on. And we even know the date of when that happened, 133 B.C. At first, it seems at least through the time period that John is writing this letter, it didn't say that way forever, but at least through the time period that John is writing this letter, Pergamum was the, was the provincial capital of Asia. All right? And if you're not brushed up on your first century political geography, Asia, as a vocabulary term, is not the name of the continent that we call it today. That's not how they used the, that name in, the, in that day and age. Uh, back then, it was the Greek uh, name for the westernmost region of Asia Minor. All right? And I mean westernmost region, modern Turkey. Uh, both Asia and Anatolia have their kind of uh, derived their names from the Greek word for east. All right? And so to the Greek mind, when you think that the center of the world is the Greek peninsula and all of its islands, everything to the east of that is just over there in Asia. That's, that's kind of their worldview. Everything on the other side of the Aegean is to the east, ergo Asia. And so when the Roman Empire emerged, they pretty much just co-opted a bunch of Greek stuff and, uh, as their own. And so a lot of the names stuck. They changed some of them, but a lot of the names just stuck. And so the center of the world just moved from Greece to Rome, and that's still to the east. So Asia, it works. All right? And so Pergamum, at the time of this letter, is the capital of the region. That capital eventually moved to Ephesus, but in John's day, Pergamum was still a pretty big deal. In fact, Pliny the Elder, a historian, he called Pergamum by far the most distinguished city in Asia. That's a noble title. One commentator I looked at this week described it this way. If Ephesus was New York City, Pergamum was D.C., Smaller town, smaller buildings, but punches far above its weight class when it comes to influence, right? So geographically speaking, Pergamum uh, was, was just incredibly imposing. It sit upon a giant hill. And when I mean giant hill, I mean giant hill. Uh, in the ancient Greek world, there were a few non-negotiables that you had to have in order to establish a, a city. All right? Whenever it came time to create your city, you had to have a few things that were just on the list, and if they weren't on the list, it didn't qualify. All right, you needed a water source. That seems pretty obvious, right? You needed some arable land. You, people got to eat. You needed a source for marble. Okay, that one's a little weird, all right? They needed a source for marble, all right? But most importantly of all, they needed an acropolis. What's an acropolis? Acropolis is the Greek word for hill. They needed a giant hill. Why do you need a giant hill? Two reasons, defense and worship. You, you created a walled keep at the top of the hill that helped you defend yourself against attacks. But even more importantly, you needed a tall place to set all your pagan temples on top of. You don't put, you don't put temples to gods down in the valley. You put them up on the hill, right? And so Pergamum had the best hill in all of Western Asia. 
And it, it was an imposing hill. The Acropolis of Pergamum sits at 1,100 feet above sea level, which doesn't sound incredibly big until you realize that everything around it is sitting like 150 feet. It just shoots up into the sky. Um, it's only 15 miles from the coast. Three sides of it are completely unclimbable. The other side, the fourth side, or the south side of the hill has a few natural terraces. And so they built the city into the hill, walking up the hill. Um, like several of these locations, I, I got to visit Pergamum back in November when I went on that trip to Turkey. Uh, and so I've got a, a few pictures I can show you. All right, so Mr. Brent, can I see some of the pictures? So I had to ride a gondola to get up there. Like that's how big the hill is. Nobody's, nobody's hiking this hill. We took a gondola, all right? Uh, in order to get up this thing, I took a gondola. And so that, that's how you know how imposing the hill is. Let me see the next picture. So I tried my best. I had this great idea that I was going to take a selfie, which I'm not good at selfies, but I, I think I could figure out the selfie thing. And I was going to take a selfie as the other gondola was passing back, the return gondola on the other line. And then, and then as I was getting ready to take it, the wind blew. And the gondola did this. And so that face is genuine. <laughs> um, next slide. Once you're up there, this is a model uh, of what Pergamum would have looked like in the second century. That big white circular thing, that's a, that's a theater that sits like 10, 12,000 people. All right? So we're talking about a massive hill, uh, all of these kinds of things. All right, so uh, once you get up there, that, that's the model of what it looks like. You can kind of see how Washington, D.C. is a good, like an apt description, right? Like white buildings everywhere, ornately decorated um, this is not a functional setup. This is not aimed for getting the processes done as quickly and as efficiently as possible. This is planned. This is designed in order to make a statement, right? Look at the next slide. So this is on top of the hill, looking down at Pergamum, looking down over the theater there. Um, obviously, you build your theater into the side of the hill and if your hill is the steepest around, then your seats are steep, right? Like, this puts a whole new definition on the nosebleeds. Next slide. You can walk around through different levels of the ruins. Hit the next one. Hit the next one. Walking through. Uh, this is like where they stage um, all the sacrifices that are going to be made in one of the temples. It's dug down into the earth. Next slide. Next slide. This right here is uh, the most famous landmark on top of the Acropolis in Pergamum. It's called the, the Temple of Trajan. All right? um, it was a temple to the imperial cult. And for those of you who haven't been paying attention yet, it is the, the key image in our sermon series. This is the one we've been using. Um, this was not around in John's day. It was built exactly one generation later. Uh, but it was in a temple to the imperial cult. And, uh, but it was also, though, a, a perfect illustration, I think, of what Pergamum was, what it stood for, what it tried to be, uh, where it's sitting. You can see how ornately it's designed. Like, those columns are fluted. You've got a bunch of uh, uh, things carved into the top. Like, um, you, you, Pergamum was a capital city. It's sitting on the tallest hill around. Is it hard to imagine that Pergamum was all about the show? 
Pergamum had major temples to all of the most important gods. And listen, they had to have temples to all the most important gods. You couldn't not be represented in Pergamum. Like if you got the best hill and the most ornate temples, then you couldn't let your God not be represented in Pergamum, right? But it's not just represented. Uh, represented. Uh, uh, you had to have temples, uh, but you also had to have the prettiest temples. Uh, you had the temple of Zeus. You had the temple of Dionysus, the temple of Athena, the temple of Demeter. Uh, you had the temple to the imperial cult Augustus and the goddess Roma. Did you know there was a goddess Roma? Not unless you've been like dealing with that like uh, little trend thing on TikTok and like thinking about Roman Empire all week long. Like I've been thinking about Roman Empire all week long. All right, so. But they didn't merely exist in the city. They didn't merely need to have a temple present in the city. They had to be the most exquisite versions of those temples that anyone had ever seen. The temple of Zeus uh, is not in Pergamum anymore. You know where it is? They boxed it up. They shipped it to Berlin. and it's on a, like, They put it back together in a museum in Berlin. Like Part of Pergamum is in Berlin. If you ever go to Europe, go to Berlin, go to the museum there, you can find it. All right? So why, is, why, why, is, why are the temples such a big deal? Well, there, there was an architectural school in Pergamum that uh, produced some of the finest marble workers in the world. Guess what they spent all their time building? But it didn't stop at temples. There was also a famous library in Pergamum. It's thought to be the second largest library in the ancient world. We've all kind of heard of the, the Library of Alexandria. Jeff talked to, uh, a few weeks ago about the Library of Celsus, the library in Ephesus. That was number three on the list. Pergamum was number two. We were told that Pergamon was always trying to outbid luminaries and, and scholars in Alexandria and Ephesus to get their workers, their historians, their scholars to come work in Pergamum instead. The second most important Asclepion in the Greek world was in Pergamon. Asclepion is a healing center. Think spa retreat slash hospital. It became sort of a pilgrimage site for Anyone who had an ailment, you, you travel to Pergamum to get it taken care of. Had a temple to the Greek god of medicine, Asclepius. You go make your sacrifice, you do a sequence of baths in all the ritual pools. And so Pergamum was a medical center, it was an intellectual center, it was a political center, and it was a religious center. Listen, if you didn't live in Pergamum, you definitely wanted to go there on holiday. Yeah, it's awful lot like D.C. And Jesus writes a letter to the church in that city. So what does Jesus have to say to him? In verse 13. He says, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, yet you hold fast my name, and you did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you, where Satan dwells. I know you dwell where Satan's throne is. Well, that's a line, right? Uh, anybody feel like that you know, concerning their own town? So what, what's Jesus talking about? Well, obviously there's some debate, right? Like how could you have that line floating out there in the ether and not have a bunch of opinions about it? Um, there are some interpreters of the, you know, everything is symbolic persuasion uh, that argue that this is supposed to be some kind of veiled allusion to the Roman Empire, or maybe not so veiled allusion. And then there are others, there are others out there who argue uh, that John is pointing forward to a, the future rise of the Roman Catholic Church and, and the problems that it created. But, but most people look at this and they just point to all the things in the city that I just mentioned, right? Ancient Pergamum was a city... It was chock full of idolatry and pretense. It was everywhere you turned. 
You cannot avoid worship in that town. Worship of pagan gods, worship of the empire, worship of the intellect, and worship of your very own body. It was quite fair to say that Satan was in charge in ancient Pergamum. Jesus says, guys, I know where you are. I know how difficult it is in that town. I know how hard it is. The cultural pressure there is far beyond what most people have to put up with. I get it. I mean, even for us, like it's, it's far beyond even what we have to, to put up with. I know it's tempting to think that the cultural pressures that we face in our own society is as bad as it's ever been for a while. And maybe that is true. Maybe it's not as true as we like to believe it is. But the truth is, we ain't got nothing on what was going on in the ancient Greek world. Not even close. We're talking about a culture that immediately labeled Christians as unpatriotic atheists. And I know as soon as that comes out of my mouth, I'm probably going to have to explain both of those terms. Unpatriotic atheists. All right, I promise they're both legit, though. Uh, there was, they were seen as unpatriotic in the sense that they refused to worship the empire, and specifically the emperors. Um, there was an ever-present undertone that, that any problem that occurred in town was specifically due to the Christians who wouldn't toe the line. Specifically due to the Christians who wouldn't play the game. Everybody else loves the empire. Everybody gladly shows their devotion to Roma. The Christians, they're the ones who have the audacity to act like this world is not their home. Well, who do they think they are? Can't trust them. Well, it wasn't just a lack of patriotism, though. They were also accused of being atheists because they dogmatically held to the ridiculous belief that there was only one God. It's unpluralistic. You can't be like that. I mean, just look at all the other options in town. Don't you know how much we value everybody's opinion around here? In the second century AD, a Christian uh, leader named Polycarp was, was executed in Smyrna, the, the town that we looked at last week. Um, and the official charge against him, like the thing that got put on the indictment was that he was an atheist. And so they put him to death. Jesus tells the church at Pergamum, listen, I understand how hard things are for you. I know how unfair it feels. I know how easy it seems to, to, to walk away and commit yourself to an easier pathway. Listen, I get it. And trust me, I, I've seen your faithfulness in the past. I've seen it. Last week we looked at Smyrna, learned about their faithfulness, and about how Jesus promised that greater persecution would, would, would come and they needed to be ready for it. But here in Pergamum, Seems like they'd already lived through quite a bit of that persecution. It wasn't, it wasn't something coming down the pipe for them. It's something that they were already experiencing. Uh, what was coming in Smyrna had already been hanging out in Pergamum for a while. And Jesus points to a guy named Antipas. Apparently Antipas was a man who, who had already been martyred in the city. They knew that story. Jesus says that there is a clear history in, in the Pergamum church of standing tall, of standing faithful, even under incredible persecution. And so he celebrates their past faithfulness. But you, you might be noticing that I keep using the word past, right? And so while Smyrna last week had nothing to critique, that is not the case at all with Pergamum. Look at verse 14. Jesus says this, But I have a few things against you. You have some there who, have, who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel, so that they might eat food, sacrifice to idols, and practice sexual immorality. 
15. So also you have some who hold the teachings of the Nicolaitans. All right, so just as Jesus accused the church in uh, a Pergamum of false doctrines, uh, like, like false teachings, uh, he, he uses explainers to clarify what those false doctrines are. And he pointed to the Nicolaitans and the teachings of Balaam. And I'm sure everybody in the room right now just, just thought to themselves, mm, yeah, Balaam and the Nicolaitans. Amen, Jesus. Uh, but for you know, all the other people in the room, can you go ahead and explain to them who the teachings of Balaam and the Nicolaitans are? Just for them, just for their edification, I'm good. If you're keeping score at home, this is actually the second Balaam reference that we've had in less than a month. Don't act like you saw that coming. I didn't either. Um, back in August, when we were covering uh, Psalm 106, uh, the psalmist there talks about Balaam. Right? Uh, when we talked about that story in, out of the book of Numbers, uh, during the Exodus, Israel is wandering around in the wilderness, uh, and right after they refuse to enter into the Promised Land. So remember back to Children's Sunday School if you haven't read the story in a while. All right? So they get to the edge of the Promised Land, they, they send spies in the land, they don't want to go because, oh, they're giants or whatever. All right? And so uh, they, they rebel against God, and God uh, tells them, all right, they can't go in until that generation dies off. And so they, they start making their way back away from the edge of the Promised Land, and they settle in the land of Moab. Hey, anybody think that the king of Moab likes that idea? Probably not, right? And so he wants them gone. And so he uh, sends for a wicked prophet named Balaam to come and put a curse upon Israel. Offers a massive reward, all right? Balaam loves the idea, but he's at least smart enough to go, yeah, you know what, I should probably ask God if I'm allowed to do this first. And God tells him no. That's how the story of Balaam starts, all right? God tells him no. He's not allowed to do that. And so Balak goes, mm, how about a much bigger reward? And Balak's like, I love that idea. Let's go. Has some donkey problems on the way, all right? God tells him that he's only allowed to say exactly what God allows him to say. So they go through the whole ordeal. Balaam offers a bunch of sacrifices, gets ready to pronounce the curse. And God says, nope, offer a blessing. Bless Israel. So that's what Balaam does. So they do it again. Offer a bunch of sacrifices. Time to pronounce the curse. Nope. Blessing. So they do it again. Offer a bunch of sacrifices. Time to profess the curse. Nope. Blessing. Balaam's like, I told you. I told you I could only say what God allows me to say. So let me go ahead and say one last thing. right? And then he gives what is a clear messianic prophecy over Israel. He promises a coming Messiah, a Savior, who will forever justify God's people. Now, how do you think King Balak feels about this, this moment? He doesn't like it. He says, go home. I ain't got no use for you anymore. Just go home. But uh, Balaam really wants that reward. Really wants to get paid. So he says, listen, I, I can't pronounce a curse over Israel, but I can tell you what you can do. And get them to bring a curse upon themselves. Tempt them with prostitutes and idolatry. They'll fall into sin. They'll make a giant mess of things all on their own. You don't have to curse Israel because you can get them to do it for you. So that's exactly what Balak does. Israel falls into terrible sin and a curse is exactly what God gives them. Later on in the New Testament, both in 2 Peter and then in the letter to, of Jude, um, false teachers are described uh, there as being like Balaam, leading God's people into sin and ruin for their own personal gain. Another commentator 
I looked at this week said, uh, whether those in Pergamum were teaching false doctrine for pay or simply teaching false doctrine, we do not know. What is evident is that sexual immorality and compromise with idolatry were being tolerated and even advocated by leaders in the church. So how was it being tolerated and or advocated? Well, that's where this charge of teaching like the Nicolaitans come in. We don't actually know who the Nicolaitans are. They're mentioned twice in the Bible. Uh, two times here in Revelation, the letter to Ephesus and here in this letter to Pergamum. Uh, but nowhere else. They're just not in the rest of the New Testament. So, so how can we know anything about them? Well, we can speculate based on what's going on in the two locations that are mentioned. And we can also, since Jesus seems to tie them together here, the teachings of Balaam and the teachings of the Nicolaitans, we can tie them together uh, based on what we know about the teachings of, of Balaam. Uh, and so that, that Jude text I mentioned just a moment ago, he says this, For certain people have crept in unnoticed, who long ago were designated for this condemnation, ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. So our best guess, all right, educated, theorizing best guess is that, uh, of who the Nicolaitans are uh, is that they were a group of people who would come into a church, that they would somehow find their way into the leadership of that church and then use that platform to teach wrong and damnable views of the gospel, specifically regarding sexual immorality. Chiefly the actions, uh, that, that, the, that the actions of the body are, are somehow separated from the actions of the soul. It's like it doesn't matter. They're not connected. Kind of like an early proto-form of Gnosticism, we would argue. Gnosticism really emerged in the second century, but there were little things that gave birth to that, that movement of Gnosticism. And we think the Nicolaitans might have been a part of that. That it doesn't matter what a Christian does with their body. The grace of God is oh, it's already covered for it. Don't you worry. There's no need for repentance. There's no need for growing in holiness. You go on and live your best life. God's good with it. 75 to 100 years after John wrote uh, Revelation, a, a church leader named Clement of Alexandria wrote about them too. He says that the Nicolaitans abandoned themselves to pleasure like goats, leading a life of self-indulgence. I don't know what pleasure like goats means, but it sounds weird. Okay, so how do the false teachings of Balaam and the Nicolaitans flesh itself out in, in Pergamum, though. And the answer to that is the exact same way that Balaam instructed Balak all those years before. The exact same way. You don't have to curse them. You don't have to attack them outright. No, 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 no. Just put the opportunity in front of them for, to sin, and they'll make a mess of it themselves. Just open the door, and they'll fall apart all on their own. Ancient Pergamum was a city chock full of idolatry and pretense. You can't avoid worship in that town. Worship of the pagan gods, worship of the empire, worship of the intellect, worship of your own body. We all kind of immediately put together the pieces on the idea of a cult prostitute. That was clearly present in Pergamum, so it's not hard to, to you know, figure out how that trajectory would go. But on top of that, Jesus says in verse 14 that they were eating food that had been sacrificed to idols. So, so what's that about? Well, it's been a while, been a couple of years even, uh, but if you weren't around uh, in the days when we studied the letter of 1 Corinthians together, whether, whether or not Christians are allowed to eat meat that had been sacrificed to, to idols is actually a major point of that letter. Paul spends a lot of time talking about it. And all of the temples were full of idols, whether Pergamum or Corinth or anywhere in between. All the temples were full of idols, and all of these idols were receiving animal sacrifices. But newsflash, statues don't eat anything. <laughs> 
right? Crazy. Um, it's all left over after the ceremony is done. And so two different things would often happen with that leftover meat. One, it would often be collected and then resold in the markets, usually at an upcharge, because it was fancy meat now, right? right? And so if you're the type of person that likes to buy fancy meat, you go buy the fancy meat, right? And so Paul tells Christians that it's okay to eat that meat, right? It was just laying in front of some dumb statue. It can't hurt you, right? You're probably overpaying for it, but it can't hurt you, right? However, you should refrain from eating it, Paul teaches, if you're with a non-Christian pagan or an immature Christian who's just come out of pagan idolatry, has that in their history, because they're not able yet to separate out the act of worship that was attached to it. So for the good of their conscience, don't make it more complicated. It's a gospel clarity issue. You can put your liberties down and just be the bigger person in that moment. You don't need it. All right? In that specific moment, just lay it down. You, it's not for you. The mature Christian ought to willingly and lovingly lay down their liberty so that they can clearly communicate the gospel. That was Paul's point in 1 Corinthians. But there's a second thing that uh, would often get done with the meat. It would also often be served in giant feasts inside of the temples right after the ceremony was over as a fellowship and celebration of the pagan god that it, the meat was sacrificed to. And in 1 Corinthians, Paul argues that Christians should never, they're not, not an option, never participate in those moments. In that moment, it's not a conscience issue. It's actively participating in an act of worship. No, it wasn't the laying it on the altar, but it's an extension of that worship and a picture of that worship. To the false god. It's a party foul. And that is what Jesus has in view here in verse 14. People who publicly identified as Christians were members of the church in Pergamum. They were also, because there were a thousand opportunities, participating in the feast across all the different temples in town. For some of them, the reasoning may have been an intentional disconnect between belief and practice. Oh, it, it doesn't really matter, so it's okay. All right? For others, it may have been a desire to belong to the local community. I don't really like this. My conscience is not settled with this, but I really want to be included in the community. For others... Maybe they just felt pressured into it by friends and by family and by, by neighbors. See, the church at Pergamum may have a long history of unyielding faithfulness. They may even have some, some martyr stories that they can tell in their prouder moments. But that does not mean, hear me, that does not mean that they were not capable of falling away in a tragic manner. They absolutely were. See, Pergamum's failure did not come in through the front door. Pergamum's failure did not come in through a direct refutation of the gospel. No, no, it came in through the back door of the church's members sliding deeper and deeper and deeper into beliefs and practices that they logically justified in the name of gratification or in the name of comfort or in the name of access or in the name of cultural celebration. Satan didn't need to curse the church at Pergamum. He didn't need to openly attack them. He just needed to create the opportunity for sin, and they went and chased it themselves. They openly embraced the opportunity, it seems. So Jesus says, hey, Pergamum, despite your history, I have a few things against you. Past faithfulness does not automatically equate to contemporary faithfulness. I know you remember the days of Antipas. I was there. I remember them too. But you have left those days behind. So what's the per church at Pergamum to do then? Well, Jesus tells them in verse 16. He says, therefore repent. It's that simple. 
Therefore repent. If not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. Can, can I go ahead and say out loud that every, what everybody kind of probably ought to be you know, thinking in this moment? The idea that Jesus would show up and actively war against his church ought to terrify us. We all there? We all on the same page on that one? Back in 1 Corinthians, shortly after Paul tells them that no Christian should participate in the temple feast, he transitions from talking about that into talking about the Christian practice of the Lord's Supper. And I know most Christians probably have never thought about putting the Lord's Supper in the same category as a pagan potluck, all right? I, I get that. But Paul intentionally ties those ideas together because they ought to be intentionally tied together. It's, not the, it, it's the same general concept. We may not be barbecuing leftover idol meat, uh, but the Lord's Supper is as far as you can get from some mere fellowship meal after worship. It's not a party. The entire purpose of the Lord's Supper is to first remember amongst ourselves and then secondly to communicate to those outside of us who we are as a church and what we are as a people symbolically identifying with the death of Jesus. And to knowingly muddy those waters, muddy that picture, is to knowingly miscommunicate the gospel. And so in 1 Corinthians 11, Paul points to some people who had gotten sick and some who, who even had died after taking the Lord's Supper in an improper manner. He says, that's probably not an accident. Jesus is going to guard the integrity of his gospel, even if his church won't. And so the threat made here to the church at Pergamum is that Jesus might actually show up and deal with it if they don't handle it. They don't get this straight. Jesus is coming and playing for the opposing team. Repent. Repent, and if not, then Jesus drops this line about the sword of his mouth. I told you last week that the that a way to cheat and get an idea of what each of these letters is going to be about is to see how Jesus introduces himself, right? Back up in verse 12, what does it say? The words of him who has a sharp two-edged what? Whenever the New Testament uses the, the, the word sword as like this word picture to point to something else, it's, it's always talking about two different things. Uh, the first idea is the idea of truth, right? And we all kind of get that. It cuts through joint and marrow. It's probably some of your favorite verses. Right? And the fact that this sword is coming out of Jesus' mouth would seem to indicate that that's definitely in view here. But the second way that the New Testament often uses a sword as a word picture is when it's talking about authority. Authority. In Romans 13, when, when Paul is talking about the government's right role in repressing evil and uh, exacting earthly justice, uh, he, the way he explains that is to say that God has seen fit to give them the sword. He didn't give the sword to, to the churches. He gave it to human governments. Can governments abuse and misuse that sword? Absolutely they can. We've all seen it. They often do. And so we have to remember here that Pergamon was a provincial capital, right? It was a seat of government. It was a place crawling with Roman official presence and, and an equally large number of Roman swords. There was always a not-so-subtle threat hanging in the air of Pergamum of what would happen if you tried to oppose Rome. But Jesus reminds the church at Pergamum who is actually in charge. You may fear Rome, because it's right in front of you in the moment, but 
That is a short-sighted assessment. The authority of Jesus, based on the incomparable and incorruptible truth of his word, is a far greater and far more eternal authority. And so Jesus says, repent. If you really understand who I am, you're not so worried about Rome anymore. Be obedient to me. Oh, but I never deny you, Jesus. It's just that there's you know, some other valuable things that I can gain access to. And so you know, if I just go ahead and play the game a little bit. Oh, of course that I believe that salvation comes by grace alone, through faith alone, by the works of Christ alone. It's just that, you know, accusations of being unpatriotic don't really fly with me. It's really difficult to advance my career if I'm accused of being unpluralistic. Oh, I would never reject the gospel. Absolutely not. It's just that I'm not really a fan of the whole righteousness thing. And so I'm thankful for your grace. You rock. Besides, I... Have you seen the parties they're throwing down at Zeus's temple? They're bangers. They're big old parties. Jesus, I know you want our whole hearts, but there's some advantages for, for me to try to play both ends of this. Not to brag, but I'm pretty good at playing both ends of this. I mean, I know, know that no one else ever gets it right, but I'm, I'm smarter than all those. Satan and the false teachers at Pergamum don't have to bring a curse. God's people are perfectly capable of messing it up on their own. Make a grand show of guarding the front door while throwing the back door wide open and inviting the enemy in. And so Jesus makes himself clear. Repent. Repent, and if not, I will come to you soon and war against. But Jesus doesn't stop at making a threat. He also makes a promise. Do you see it? Or maybe you haven't yet. Just like the threat ought to not be taken lightly, the, roar, the reward promised for obedience should not be taken lightly either. And that promise comes in verse 17. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. So as you can imagine, there's debate over pretty much every single word of that second sentence. Um, the Most commentators like to, to point out that the story that we keep coming back to, the story of Balaam and Balak down at Peor, um, Israel was still eating manna in those days while they were in the wilderness. Even while they were willingly running away from God's promise, saying, no, we don't want to enter the land, and moving instead to Moab, God is still feeding them every morning, right? Even as they are actively running into the arms of women and find food, they had woken up literally that morning with fresh food to eat, laying on the ground, miraculously given to them by the hand of the Lord. The idea that God was, was already supplying all of their needs was not some far-off, like, foreign concept to Israel in those days. It wasn't a, a thought experiment. It wasn't something they learned about, about some fanciful story in Sabbath school. No, it was breakfast that morning. They ate breakfast by the hand of the Lord that day. God's provision was literally what they had eaten to sustain them in that day. The church at Pergamum wasn't picking up daily food off the ground. We all get that. Right? But they were actively being sustained by God. They were still being actively sustained, even as they chose to involve themselves with false gods surrounding them. 
But manna is the much, much easier part of the interpretive question to answer in all this stuff. What in the world do we do with a white stone with an unknown name that no one's ever heard before written on it? What do we do with that? Well, the answer is I don't know. I don't know. There are literally more theories than I could count this week. Every time I opened up a new resource to go, what do they say about this? It was something I hadn't read before. I can give you a couple of the best sounding ones, though. One option, one option was that it was a common, a common in several Roman provinces at the time uh, to give someone a stone as a picture of a court verdict. And so if you were being convicted of something, they would hand you a black stone. And if you were being acquitted of something, they would hand you a white stone. Sounds cool? So the argument goes that even if, even if the faithful in Pergamum suffer incredible legal persecution, even if they're convicted for following Jesus, they will ultimately be handed a white stone and be acquitted by Jesus on the last day when he stands in judgment overall. Well, that's a cool picture. I don't know if it's true, but it sounds really smart. Another theory is that white stones were a placeholder prize that you would give to contestants of, of certain contests, and, and that stone could then be handed in in exchange for the actual prize, the valuable prize. So at the finish line of the race, they'd hand the, the winner the, the stone, and then he would have to go turn that in for whatever the actual prize was, right? Um, kind of like, I don't know, cool little medal or something. One variation of that same theory was that there were, there were special prizes that would often be... Uh, given to a contestant if that contestant was allowed to retire like you remember in gladiator when proximo shows off his wooden gladius nobody got that reference never mind all right so exactly two of you understood me all right but the strongest theory i think i found strongest theory i think i found because it seems to tie in all of this food and party stuff that's going on in this letter um is that the white stone would be given as a prize uh, for winning a contest and then act as a ticket for all the winners to show up at the end of the day for the special feast. It would be their entrance into that feast. Special prize honoring the victors. And so the theory goes is that those in Pergamum who stood faithful to the end, they would be given this sort of ticket to celebrate a far richer and far more eternal feast to come. A reward that will forever reveal just how petty and small every other prize we often chase actually is. Now, is that certainly what Jesus means by the white stone? I have no idea. I wish I could tell you. I wish I was smart enough to figure that out. But Jesus seems to think that this invitation is going to sound appealing to some and not sound appealing to others. That it won't sound appealing to everybody. And so he says, those who have ears to hear, let them hear. So the reality is seems to be that Jesus and his promises are either something that you really, really want, that sounds incredible to you, and you want completely unmixed and untarnished by any other offer in this world. Why would you want something less than that? Or or Jesus' promises are something that you don't really comprehend, and therefore it's really, really easy to justify the games that we often play and a thousand other things. So that leads to the obvious massive question this morning. What do we do with this stuff, right? Well, if you're a follower of Jesus, I think the answer is that we repent of sin and we lean into what God is revealing about himself in the text. And this week, I, I think that response probably, probably ought to take the, sh- the shape of an, an honest assessment of the games we sometimes try to play, 
Or am I the only one that does that? Of course we'd never let the enemy through the front door. We're way too resolute for that. Gladly stand faithful for Jesus. But there's some folks knocking on the back of the door and they sound really cool. Look a little off, but they seem nice. What integrity things are you tempted to think, "Eh, it doesn't really matter in the long run? That mental and logical posturing is not an accident. It's a warning sign. We live in a culture that is just as full of idolatry and pretense. We cannot avoid worship. Worship of pagan gods, worship of the empire, worship of the intellect, worship of our own bodies. We may not have literal sex temples and mandated sacrifices to politicians anymore, but nobody thinks that that's so outlandish that it'll never happen, right? Nobody watching the world around us is going, that could never happen here. It could. But even if it doesn't, doesn't, we don't necessarily need the direct assault. The back door is sometimes open. We have our own cultural temptations to keep the foot in, in multiple belief systems. And sometimes we have a lot of pressure to toe that line. But Jesus is either a higher authority or he's not, right? His promises are either a sweeter prize or they're not. So I want to pray and we're going to sing another song. That's a time that we set aside, set apart to give you space to respond. I'll, I'll be down front if you want to talk to someone about it. But what if you're here this morning and you're not a follower of Jesus yet? Can you respond to God's word? answer is absolutely yes. Absolutely yes. Even in a letter warning God's people against failing in complacency. Like, absolutely you can respond to Jesus in this moment. All right, here's what you need to hear this morning. All right, the gospel of Jesus does not promise you a better party than what you can find down at the local pagan temple. It's not what he's aiming for. What he does offer you, though, is full and forever reconciliation with the God that is truer and sweeter and more eternal than any pagan deity or priority that's ever been dreamt up on this planet. The Bible teaches that because of our sin, we are all by default separated relationally from God. That we are all owed the just and right punishment for that sin separation. The Bible calls that punishment God's wrath. But the Bible also teaches that God is rich in mercy and that he loves us with a great love. And that even when we are dead in our trespasses and sins, he makes us alive again by the grace of Christ. The eternal son of God put on flesh and dwelt among us. He lived a sinless life that I can't live and you can't live and none of us can live. And he lived a sinless life that that we are not capable of living. And he died on the cross as an innocent substitute to make full and final payment for your sin. Every ounce of it. He was raised again from the dead as a vindication of his own perfect and sufficient righteousness, as a down payment of all those he would bring with him in resurrection. And now as the king, who stands confidently over the grave, conquered sin and death, he calls on you to respond to him in repentance and faith, to turn away from your sin and to turn to him as Savior and Lord. And you can do that today. And I'd love to be helpful to you. We can talk. Maybe you're here this morning and you need to respond in some other kind of way. Maybe, maybe that's by formally joining our church family. Or maybe it's time to be obedient to Jesus' command to be baptized. Or maybe God's been placing some call on your heart to take the gospel somewhere far away from here, and you need some help figuring out what those next steps look like. Man, I'm here for it. Let's talk. But whoever you are, and however God's word is calling you to respond this morning, let's all respond together right now. Father, you're good to us. Thank you for the scriptures. Thank you for a letter in Revelation. I'm scared of the moments where we're reading these letters, and I go, uh-oh. Is this us? 
guard our hearts. Whether we're more like Ephesus or Smyrna or Pergamum or any of the others or none at all, would you guard us? Thank you for the moments that we could point to of resolutely standing for the gospel, but oh, please, I beg you, protect us from flinging the back door open. Personally and corporately. But you are, you are a better king. You are a better God and you are a better prize than anything else that we might think looks good. So rather than just helping us be resolute to guard the back door, maybe just help us love you more enough that the back door never even gets noticed. Father, for those in here who don't know you yet, would you make yourself known in this moment? Open eyes to see and ears to hear. We love you. Thank you for loving us first. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Let's stand and respond.
some announcements before we duck out of here today. Uh, be praying for Jeff Muster. Uh, so he is at, um, he should be getting up to preach right about now in Bedford uh, at a church called New Hope. Uh, we are in this kind of larger network of churches uh, that we partner with. And uh, um, we got a, a text <laughs> like Monday <laughs> that said, hey, uh, I could use some help. And uh, can you cover for me this week? Do you have anybody in your church that can like come preach for us? And uh, I sent out a text to our guys and like one of them said, yeah, I, I can do it. So I, I say that to say two things. One, if don't ever be mad that Jeff's not here because usually I sent him somewhere to work, all right? Two, isn't it incredible that God has blessed us in such a way that we can say yes in those opportunities? And so be praying for him. We get to be the church that lovingly and very easily says yes to opportunities like that. And um, through what God is doing here and the effort to trust us with this elder process, all right, we have, are, we're now building up this kind of... A deep bench, we could call it, of guys who can not only serve here but serve outside of here. And God's going to use that in some awesome ways, and he's doing that this week. And so Jeff should be preaching right about now as right? so we be praying for him. All right, announcement number two. Uh, we have a, like a whole slot available uh, for cleaning teams. We have volunteers that rotate through clean teams, and we have a whole slot, like a, like a, like a multi-member team that we need to fill. And so if you're interested in that, uh, we would love to talk to you about coming up here like once a month or so, once every six weeks or so, uh, to be a part of a cleaning thing. And so instead of paying money out of our budget to like hire somebody to come clean, we just have volunteers just kind of rotate through it, and it gets done. And we get to spend that money on better kingdom things and all those things. And so, but we need some help with that. We need people to fill those slots. And so if you're interested in that and not already part of it, come talk to me and we can get that done. Uh, announcement number two, Operation Christmas Child activities are ramping up and they're ramping up fast. All right, if you didn't know, our church gladly, lovingly participates in Operation Christmas Child, OCC, uh, each year. And so there are a bunch of moving parts with that, including getting y'all to pack boxes on your own, but also this big group effort. We'll have a packing party the first, like in early November, uh, but we are, we're going to have a dessert contest, or not a contest, a dessert auction to help fund sending all the boxes, and that's happening uh, in about a month. And so here's what I say. Look at the bulletin, because Jody works pretty hard to get all the OCC stuff in the bulletin, and there's a bunch of stuff coming down the pipe, and if you don't know it's coming, that's your fault, because she put it in there, I promise, all right? So Finally, small groups. We got coffee and pastries outside, but small groups are the best next step for pressing into the life of our church, and it just so happens they're happening in four minutes. Woo! All right, so... I'm going to pray, and you're going to run, and you're going to do what you do thing. If you need to be connected to a small group, I'll get you connected to a small group. Sound good? All right, let's do that. Father, thank you so much for uh, getting to gather together as your church. We're thankful that for all the hiccups and warts of who we are, uh, you are f far more beautiful. And so it doesn't matter what we look like, you look awesome. And so uh, we love you. Thank you for uh, doing everything here, and thank you for our time together. Thank you for what you're going to do in this next hour. We love you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.